It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is CEO and Managing Director Cyrus Chowdhury. His career is focused on global market access issues across six continents, split evenly between emerging and developed markets. His consulting achievements include successful assignments in pharmaceutical and medical technology, price integrity, payer partnerships, and innovative access schemes. Prior to founding CB Partners, Cyrus founded and led the global market access practice at ISA. He holds a master's in international health policy from the London School of Economics and a bachelor's of neuroscience from Boston University. Cyrus Chowdhury, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. And I know for a long time that I've needed to whittle that down, and uh, hopefully you can hopefully you can help us do that too. But uh, but thank you for having me. Well, we always kind of like to start with the early years, and maybe you can just tell me a little bit about those. Where'd you grow up, and uh, what was your early family life like? Uh, well, thank you for asking. I don't get to talk about it very much these days. More people want to know about, you know, things that came afterwards. But, uh, but yeah, no, those are, um, you know, those were were very formative years. They helped to shape us all, right? And, and certainly uh, the case with me too. I I was born uh, in Toronto um, and uh, lived there for five years, and moved down to uh, to Arizona as our first stop in America. And and uh, I didn't know it at the time, but my parents very well did that. That was. That was uh, probably the first step of achieving the goal, which was to get to America. You know, they were um, they were married in uh, in India. Uh, they were, and they and they didn't get to uh, Canada until uh, living in in uh, in Germany for twelve years, and and my dad getting his education there and fighting through that um, that process, and then ultimately getting a job in Canada, and then getting to America finally. And that you know that was their goal. And you know, people ask about where you know, where, where ambition comes from, where motivation comes from. And, uh, I think quite often, uh, people, people do forget about where, um, that is originated from before you're even born, where your parents are kind of helping to think about what, what accomplishing a dream is and that we're, we're just a continuation of that. And, and in this case, it absolutely was. And, um, it, uh, it, it was the first step of my journey was to getting to America. Brothers and sisters. One sister, um, uh, Jasmine, she is uh, a 
few years older than me and been a, been a nice guiding light for me uh, all the way along. She's a doctor. Um, and so that, uh, you know, that was actually a great thing to have um, with headlights on in front of me because I, I was able to figure out that practicing medicine was not uh, the thing for me once, once she told me about all the pain that she was <laughs> experiencing of not the educational process, but about actually, you know, dealing with, uh, with, with the challenges of practicing medicine. So um, that is, uh, that's been a great, and, and in many other ways, my sister has been a, a great uh, mentor to me. So uh, very important. Other than the DNA links, which you referred to, because I believe in that too. I think we're born with certain traits that are inherited. What were some of the early influences that your parents had and, and maybe your older sister as well growing up? Uh, n- number one is, uh, is education, um, and prioritizing that, uh, you know, and, and I think sometimes, you know, and we all do, I think we can all say it very easily about many relationships, but it's, it's, it is about, you know, maybe learning about what's not the right thing to focus on as well. And they help us to do that. Um, sometimes just by, by telling us to try everything. And then there are those things that just don't work as priorities for, for you as an individual. And for me, that was very much, you know, um, say <laughs> from, from reading the same kind of books, um, that my sister liked, because just because she liked them doesn't mean that I would enjoy them. Right. Uh, and that's a standard thing, right? As I was saying before, you know, Cyrus, one of the things that, um, you know, I think I've seen so often and particularly with a lot of the CEOs that, you know, say, Hey, I've got this 20 year old uh, graduate. He won't listen to me. Will he listen to you? <laughs> I said, I'll give it a try. And, uh, you know, you'd mentioned earlier about determining you didn't want to be a doctor. I, I tell so many folks that early in their life, it's better to find those things that you don't want to do, right? It's so easy to close the doors on those because it takes a while to find your passion. Has that kind of been your journey in terms of your early career? For the personal career, as well as later on, once uh, you've identified a career and you also know where you want to go, um, as far as maybe developing your own venture, your own um, your own company, something like that, you, you you can never be closed off to opportunities, no matter how remote they sound. Um, learn about them, you know, maybe try them if it makes sense, um, and if it's uh, if it's something safe to do from a career development standpoint, etc. Try it, um, and uh, and very rarely, in fact, I think very common in the future, you'll find that, um, you know, you're not in a position to try the things that you want to, because in fact, you have developed a reputation. um, And so it may not be a good idea to try these things in a visible way. So do it while you still can. Uh, And some of that is is definitely as an individual, you know, yeah, when you're still going through education and getting your degrees, and some of it is, uh, is professionally, yeah. You mentioned the importance of education. It sounds like that was something that your parents stressed. Um, were you a good student in school and kind of your middle school, high school days? I was a, I was a student who tried hard. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I, and I still say this um, to so many people, and we all know it, the educational system, the public educational system can certainly be uh, improved in, in our country, the U.S. Um, and I think, um, and there are examples uh, globally which are certainly better, but they're better for those uh, societies and those countries. I think our, our solution is probably a little bit different. Um, and I think one of the solutions um, and, the, and things that 
I discovered myself was that um, you do need to have some variety in uh, in avenues that can be uh, pursued, and not just in practice, but also to just know that they are options. Sometimes is all that you need. You need to know that you are saying no to some things, and you are pursuing others in order to to feel like that you can have confidence in pursuing that. And and some of that is you know like it's not just all about STEM, right? And and uh, about the focus being there. Sometimes uh, you do need to know that you're not going to be a stage actor, right? Right. And you need to know <laughs> that, try that these are anyway. the things. <laughs> yeah, but and yeah, right. And maybe you'll have a great year doing that, singing a musical in your twelfth year, twelfth year of uh, of high school. And part of it is, yeah, knowing that that experience is great, but that it's not the right professional venture for you, right? Um, so that is important. Well, let's talk about some of those things. What were some of the pursuits outside of class that uh, interested you, particularly in those high school years? It was actually employing the things that you would learn about in a textbook and and not on the scientific side, but more, you know, let's talk about um, let's talk about history. Let's talk about examples and, and events that happened in, in our country and other countries. Um, and it was debate. Uh, that was that was my uh, my love. Uh, and it was uh, it was because. Yeah, it, it was the actual um, experience of, of talking to people and trying to make an argument and sometimes being told that you're right, because that was the great thing about debate is that someone would tell you you won <laughs> <That's right. laughs> at the end. That's right. And, right? and, and uh, you know, in real life, nobody, nobody does that. Uh, you just feel good about yourself, hopefully. Well, and I think it's also being able to argue both sides. I could see where that would serve you well in your business career as well. Oh, you bet. Yeah, it's uh, tremendously uh, relevant. And, you know, it's... Um, Especially when, again, our our educational system is not necessarily set up to make you feel like um, you are successful at everything, right? Uh, sometimes you do need those different uh, avenues, and and some people do it through sports. Uh, I did it through debate and some other activities, but but that was um, that was great from a confidence building standpoint, and and that that click that we all have, especially people I think who eventually um, are are able to create something and and be able to put their name on it or be part of it. Um, that is this click of self-belief that, that you are doing something and it's your idea and, uh, and, you know, maybe it isn't right. It isn't perfect, but eventually you feel enough confidence to put it forward. And then eventually it's right, right. It's right to the extent that it has some momentum behind it. And some people, uh, believe in it. Uh, all of that said, like, that's the, that's the confidence, um, that in not every household are you, are you given that in, um, in, in enough, uh, at enough of a level, but I think that you can create those experiences and opportunities for yourself to give it to yourself. What about entrepreneurial things? Uh, any of those come across your uh, uh, transom growing up? You know, did you uh, uh, out there, you know, either working on your own or maybe doing uh, entrepreneurial things when you were a kid? I not really. <laughs> you know, honestly, I think there were, um, you know, there are some examples and I think, uh, I, I don't think that they were under the control of my, um, of my parents, uh, security net, right. That I was able to try them. Um, they actually happened after, uh, you know, that, that time after I turn 18 and I'm responsible, <laughs> but before, uh, before I'm actually making enough money to be held responsible for things, uh, that, uh, I've made some of my, my biggest, uh, gambles and mistakes, uh, things like, like, uh, you know, the, when when I was turning 18 or turned 18, um, the internet was, of course, uh, taking off and e-commerce was was well on its way. And people who were empowered to do things um, uh, 
that that were great and that really did make an impact uh, were doing that. And some people who shouldn't have been empowered to do that were also doing that. And I was doing that. I was in that second category um, of setting up an e-commerce, an e-commerce uh, online shop uh, through eBay. Uh, and uh, it was absolutely the wrong thing for me to be doing, <laughs> given not, not just my strengths, but especially my weaknesses. <laughs> uh, so that was that was one thing. And it was a great, not a failure that I learned a ton from. Um, but I, I think that I do look back at that and say, you know, 18, whatever, how many years ago, 18, 20 years ago, that's something I was doing. And, uh, and if I just looked at that experience and of course, you know, you give up after that and say, I'm not a business person. Well, you know, we wouldn't have this, uh, working jobs, uh, you know, getting into your college years and so forth, uh, was that kind of part of the requirement in terms of either financing your education or, or providing your spending money? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think especially once you get into uh, into the college years and you start to distance yourself from a financial standpoint from your parents, I, I think that's uh, that's really important. And you you feel embarrassed about asking your parents for money to go take a you know take a date out. Uh, I, that's not that's really not uh, not where you want to be, right? Uh, so finding those small um, small opportunities for me was was kind of the way. I, I'll tell you two quick examples. One uh, of embarrassment where I was I was graduating. Uh, I think I was, it was my last summer before graduating college. Um, and of course I, I was a science major, I was a near science major. Um, and I had a job, um, <laughs> I had a job, uh, technically, uh, on wall street. Um, and, uh, and I was so lucky to have that job, believe me, but I also really wanted to try to push, push the boundary one more time. And that was to do something that was very much the opposite of that, to, to work, uh, in a, um, in what you might call as a restaurant, but it, uh, it, it's a restaurant of the type that, um, that, that maybe you wouldn't necessarily go to for the quality of the food, but it is fast food. And I wanted to work in their kitchen. Uh, I, I want, and I had no experience doing that uh, at all. And of course, I didn't get the job. And in my mind, which was, uh, you know, at that age, I thought I could do anything and I didn't understand why they were telling me no. Um, that was quite a lesson. It took me a little while to figure that out. Um, I was really actually a little bit, um, a little bit depressed about it for a while before somebody just said, of course you didn't get it. And it's because, you know, you don't have any experience doing that. And your life is going to be full of those rejections because you're not cut out to do everything. And that was, uh, such an obvious lesson, but it was a good one to learn that way. Uh, and then the, the second quick example was just going to work, uh, for one of these for-profit, uh, educational systems, uh, or companies where, um, you know, they basically teach you how to take a take an exam, uh, and I did that for the MCAT, which was the uh, or is the uh, exam, of course, you take for medical school. Uh, and I was lucky enough; I got scores high enough that I could do that. And uh, and that I will say that you know the big thing from that was yes, making enough money to to have a nice weekend, but also uh, the confidence factor. My goodness, you know p this exam, which was like this, um, you know my my great challenge two summers ago that I never thought I I would overcome, and uh, and now today I'm I'm supposedly standing in front of this room full of, you know, e eager, eager uh, pre-med students um, and telling them how to do well on it. And that, that was a big difference in mentality. And again, it's just a confidence factor. You, you get these things in, in spoonfuls over time. And that was one of the big ones. Well, you went to college, obviously, and education being of importance to you. How did you kind of go through the thought process of where to go and what you were going to study? You know, a big driver for me was uh, was landing in Boston. Um, I had uh, I had my sister's experience from uh, also going to college in Boston, the Cambridge area, and so I 
followed followed her path in that regard. But in every other way, you know, I, I was going out there to uh, pursue a uh, a funded approach to uh, <laughs> to, to to study um, in a university which created a program that I was able to to dabble in, to explore, to design a little bit, which was just this uh, a little bit of a combination of of neuroscience and economics um, at a time when that really wasn't neuroeconomics as a discipline was not really well developed. And so I got to got to explore a little bit of that um, and had a scholarship through that. And uh, and it, it really gave me a, a great uh, reason to go to Boston University at the time uh, and then study. Was that academic or, or merit, merit-based, your scholarship? Oh, it was merit-based. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, maintaining grades and all that, that was a necessity. And so, you know, it, it did, did restrict you, of course, on how involved you could get in having that job, right, for the week to pay for your weekends. But um, again, time, time management and all that stuff, it, it, uh, it's a great way to, to learn those types of lessons um, at an earlier age, I think. What was the first job you had out of college? The first, you know, real college, uh, post-college job, um, was uh, was at Fidelity. That was um, the the quote Wall Street job. It wasn't really Wall Street because I wasn't. I'm literally sitting on Wall Street right now in our offices. But uh, we were not on Wall Street at that time. I was still in Boston actually, but working for an investment manager. Um, and that that job was. Um, I was so lucky to have. I I was not. Um, I was not an economist. I was not trained that way, um, and uh, and I didn't really have <laughs> struggled through what all of those other students uh, did, and and what we expect of so many of our incoming analysts now at my firm to do, which was the internship or two internships, and how competitive that is. I didn't have to do that for whatever reason. I was able to get a position based on a non-traditional background, which was heavy in the sciences, and I was able to support um, the analysis and the research uh, tracking of companies that were at that time, you know, considered specialty, what they called specialty pharmaceutical companies. Um, this is not what we call specialty pharmacy. It's different today. But those were, you know, the early stage biopharmas. It was biotech, um, traditional uh, biotech today. And uh, we would track those companies and their innovation and what they were doing, but also, you know, telling the story that um, I think we were expected to tell. Uh, and uh, and that was a, that was a big um, realization for me at the time of just what exactly exactly was the expectation for this mini industry that we were in, but also, you know, did I like that? Uh, so that was my big, big aha coming out of that. Any uh, early leadership responsibilities? Uh, when did those come into play? Yeah. At Fidelity, were you um, managing people and so forth? Or when, you know, remember the first time you started managing people? You know, I wasn't. Um, and uh, and I, I was gunning for it. Uh, as you might expect, you know, anybody who's, who's eventually maybe in that position in their careers, you know, they kind of wanted an early stage too. And, and I wasn't given it and that, you know, we talk about failures and, and everything, um, uh, with that. And I, I'm happy to talk about that because it, I, I still feel like, uh, of course it wasn't justified what they were doing <laughs> and, you know, they should have given it to me. I can still make that argument, but it was more, um, it, it was a big lesson uh, for me just around um, not necessarily what not to do. I still think many of those things were the right things to be doing, but that, you know, you're not, um, uh, you're not going to win every battle and that there is a right and wrong way to go about doing things just from, you know, what is, um, what is appropriate. Right. And, uh, and, and there's a way to, to make the argument in a professional way. Uh, and I learned that, right. And not because I did anything extremely unprofessional, but I definitely was happy to, to sit down with my, my, my manager at the time and kind of make the argument. Um, and, uh, and I feel like, you know, 
there's a lot to be learned through that process of doing that in a way that, you know, kind of puts you in, in the right position, but also, you know, tells a fair story to whoever else is being considered or could be considered. Some of your early leadership lessons, you know, from bosses and mentors, you know, good and bad. You don't, you don't have to name any names, but were there any things and behaviors you remember from those early days about things you said, you know, I'm never going to be like that? <laughs> oh, many. Just like, yeah, I mean, it's a, a little bit... Um, it it feels uh, a little bit like the story we're telling or I was telling about my parents and not always being perfect, right? Same thing about, uh, you know, all bosses, all managers, because they're all human. And we always tell that to people. Your, your manager, um, just like all of us, we're learning how to do our jobs a little bit better uh, every single day. And and uh, very few of us are perfect at it. And, you know, my, um, my, my, uh, my early story, I guess, of that, I mean, every, like I said, everybody's kind of like that from a managerial standpoint. But I, I think the the boss that I had, one of them, um, at one of my, my first consulting firms that I worked with, um, and I had a lot of different bosses. That's why uh, I can tell this story. But one of them, I think... Um, he was uh, he was extremely good at his job, so so good, just at another level of just understanding. It's when I say good at his job in consulting, it was more that it went beyond you know kind of development of the advice or the guidance for our clients, et cetera, et cetera. It was his comprehension, his grasp of really what we were doing, what we were analyzing, how that was going to be used, and he was so generous with also kind of providing that perspective to me. And, and teaching me about it. Um, and I was able to go under his wing very, very early on in, uh, in my career. In fact, it was one of my first managers in consulting. Um, and, uh, and I was also uh, his last um, analyst uh, to, to work with at that firm. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> and it's because he, uh, you know, he was... Um, he was he was just taught me a lot about um, how to manage your career uh, from the standpoint of just um, you know sometimes sometimes knowing the appropriate time to make the point that's important to make right and uh, and and that just because you're overflowing with ideas that genuinely are probably right and probably a better way of doing things there's probably a reason they're not being pursued right now and sometimes that's because the person who's really in power you know doesn't understand them, but a lot of times it's not that they're they're in that position for a reason. So it's probably because it's not the best time period, and and that might be for other other reasons too. But a lot of it is that you know this person that I I was uh, I'm speaking about is just um, didn't didn't have the full picture, and also didn't know the the true limitations of his own knowledge and experience. And I think you know I, I know I still keep in touch with him a little bit, um, and I know that he's gotten pretty far in his career as well since then. And I think I'm. Willing willing to bet that a little bit of that is also just a realization of, of kind of the limits of, of the knowledge that you have. The analytical ability that you have is not going to be perfect um, in, in a vacuum. It has to be surrounded by knowledge and experience and that that, that comes with time and, and not everybody is going to have it right at their fingertips at that moment. Um, the, the problem is that he went, uh, he, he, he experimented a little bit too far with that and it got him uh, in trouble. You're being kind. <laughs> When did you start managing people? What job was that and when? Um, well, I would say that that kind of um, teaching people is is the first form of management. And, and I think that that comes uh, in my career pretty early, you know, if you, you include all the different activities I told you about um, in teaching the MCAT, et cetera. But, but I, think, um, I think that is a, a really important part of it. I'll talk to you more about, um, you know, kind of the examples in a very professional setting. Uh, I did that um, 
really, um, you know, the first time was in uh, in consulting. That's where I was, you know, because consulting you're told very explicitly for this three-month period, you are working with this person and here is the reporting relationship and here's what you need to do and here's how you're being evaluated. And it's reset every three months, you know, or so. So it's very explicitly stated and that's why I would hang on to that as, as the starting point. Um, and I, I did have that in my, um, in my, at my first firm. I grew into that role and, um, and I will tell you the, the lesson, the big lesson coming out of that, um, one of the most memorable um, examples of teaching and, and managing was the first one that I can remember, and that was uh, with an individual who joined our firm with, um, you know, in, in a position that was uh, technically it was parallel uh, to me, same title, um, and uh, and I would argue, you know, and 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 this is a, a really important pillar uh, of of how we conduct our uh, recruitment practices at our firm right now, primarily or partially because of this. Um, But that individual was not ready for that role. Um, (laughs) And in consulting and in so many other roles, but certainly in consulting, if you're going to be put in a position as a manager, you better know how to manage the other persons or the person that you're managing, their responsibilities. You better have done it before uh, and be able to tell them the different ways that they can do it and help them choose which one's best. Um, And that was not the case in this situation. Uh, And I knew that because of my experience uh, in consulting at that point. Uh, But the person I was managing managing didn't understand that and of course exaggerated the the title that they were given in their own minds right to be parallel and actually a little bit higher than me because the fact is that he had much more experience than I did and there was a reason he had that title um, it was because uh, they couldn't give him the title he wanted and <laughs> that was even higher uh, so so all of this kind of boils down to the, you know being a, a great learning lesson for me like how to um, deal with somebody who's inappropriately kind of sized for the the title that they have um, and and the role that they should have and then also how to deal with that and and also how to make Make sure that you still get it done in the end. And, and that was the first time, and we all have this memory, I think, of, you know, a very, very uncomfortable conversation happening, right? And where you have to, you know, pull up your socks, walk into a room with somebody and tell them that what they're doing is not appropriate and X, Y, and Z needs to change now. Um, and that is a tough thing for a lot of people to say, especially younger siblings, I will say, because <laughs> we're not used to that. Um, but uh, but when you get into that kind of role, sometimes you love it. And sometimes uh, <laughs> you run away scared afterwards. Um, and I, I enjoyed it, but I also realized I, I had a long way to go uh, before I was ready to uh, to do that every day. Um, and uh, and I, I like to think that uh, eventually I got there. But that, that was a tough thing to uh, to, to learn also. What about uh, your leadership style? Would you say that's evolved over time? And if so, how? Uh, it, it went from, um, yes, absolutely. It, it changes. And if, if you don't, um, if you don't change it or accept the fact that it is changing. Survive or die. Oh, for right? sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's survive, uh, survive, or evolve, evol- or, evolve die. or die for <laughs> sure. That's true. And I think it's also just recognizing that you've evolved. If you haven't, you're packaging what you're saying in a very, um, outdated way or style. And, and you'd forget that it's the empathy. I always stress this to people. It is empathy. It is understanding what the other person that you're talking to is probably thinking, um, and, uh, or at least feeling right at that moment. Uh, and you're wrong. It's not a hundred percent, but it's 
somewhat in the right ballpark. And I think that uh, if you're able to to understand how you're perceived, how are your words um, themselves changing, but also the the power behind them, who's saying them, and the respect that comes along or doesn't come along with them, I think is really critical. Um, you know, people, and I, I I am reminded of this every day, and it's it's just a, a thing that uh, I think is important for us to recall that you know a lot of people, especially in consulting, where the the turnover is relatively high in general, right? And so you've got you know a lot of people at, at our firm, for example, who have been here for uh, two years or less, and we're not a very old firm. We're about six and a half, seven years old. Uh, so when you start doing the math, you realize that there's a lot of people who are here who don't know where the firm came from, really, and don't know what you were doing six years ago, um, which is not is not running the firm. I mean, yes, it was, but it was really about doing their job still even six years ago, right? Um, and so, so re- remembering kind of the 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 people who you're you know you're kind of talking to about uh, tomorrow's deliverable or client meeting have no idea about that, or they think they have heard the story but they don't quite appreciate it. Um, it's not that I need them to, it's that I need to remember that they don't know it and that my their respect for me is not assumed uh, or should not be assumed. Uh, and so we're going to have to prove it to them every day uh, and do it in different ways. And that is uh, that is a lesson that I have had to learn. And that is also, uh, I think, uh, important from an evolution of leadership style standpoint. That's a really good segue into my next area here. And it's a little bit about company culture. You mentioned the company six, seven years. And what are your thoughts on building a company culture? And you know, how do you go about doing that? Well, you you uh, <clears throat> you hire the right people, <laughs> absolutely, uh, and and you also uh, yes, you know, early days you hire them in the image of of yourself because of course it's all. <laughs> it's psychology, right? Uh, we are we're hiring versions of ourselves. That's who we like, technically, or not technically, but usually. Um, and I think that um, that that what you have to force yourself to to think of is what you're not good at, and to look for those those types of attributes and and characters uh, characteristics. Um, if they're going to be value adding to your culture. And so what that means is that you have to define then back to your original question, what is your culture? And then how do you go through, go through that process of defining it. And our culture, um, at least for, for our firm, which is the one, you know, in my, my history of, uh, of places that I've worked that I've had, you know, the most control over, obviously, um, that is, uh, that is, is something that you're thinking of, um, which you know that you've, it's, it's kind of chock full of these examples of what not to be, I think. Uh, again, it's, uh, it's kind of definition through exclusion. And we, uh, we, we do employ that within our, recruitment process, but I will say that um, we're, we're well beyond that initial definition of our culture. Um, that was done in our earliest days. We def- You have to define those principles, that judgment um, uh, framework. So how is it that you make your, your decisions and can that please be consistent? You know, can we consistently apply that? And can we, when we talk about sustainability of consulting uh, as a career, which is something uh, we, we try to emphasize a lot as a value, um, that does that mean the same thing today as it did six years ago when we wrote it down? Uh, and we know that, but I'm not sure that everybody fully knows that or appreciates it. And so, yeah, you've got to have that that value system. You've got to apply it to all your decisions. And as well as you can, you've got to make that transparent um, in, in a way that, that ensures that you're still being nimble enough to respond to the market, to respond to your internal employees' needs, and then back to, um, you know, hopefully achieving your company's uh, company's goals overall, one pillar of which is culture and, and building the one that uh, that you want. 
What would you say is unusual or, or perhaps unique about your company culture today? Unique. Uh, I would say that the unique thing certainly is the the level of um, it's it is it is that balance of transparency and and nimbleness uh, which we really 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 try to uh, to preserve. And when I yeah the culture and and even the way that people define company culture corporate culture will vary. And and what we do is we are thinking about. Um, a variety of different factors and perspectives on the company from the internal side. And one of those things is certainly uh, how empowered people feel uh, to, to make the decisions every day or every hour that they ought to be making and responsible for, but to also deal with the accountability that comes with that and to even know what you know, how do we measure that accountability? And it's the emphasis being placed on that side of the equation, I would say, that that makes us quite unique. It does marry itself or tie itself in very, very tightly to that question of transparency uh, as well as nimbleness, right? So we can decentralize all of our decisions to, you know, anyone that we want at the firm. Some of them are way too important to be doing that, but most of them aren't. <laughs> and and most of them aren't. And those things can move down to, to other people when you look at the hierarchy. Um, but it's no good, and you're asking for catastrophe if you also don't train them to how, on how do you make those decisions. They don't see it employed um, uh, enough times before they're given the reins. And then also that you're never anywhere further than riding shotgun with them, that you are checking in with them, and you are uh, there to, to help, them, uh, help them deal with the situation. And most importantly, they know when to ask for help. It's not about knowing what to do in every situation. It is what, what, when to ask actually for help on a particular decision. So that's accountability, that's tra transparency of decision-making and decentralization for us. And how many current employees now? We're at about, we're just approaching about 70, 65 to 70 with an incoming class uh, for next summer. In all one location, or do you have multiple sites now? Yeah, we've got, uh, actually, since our second year in business, we've had, uh, our third year in business, we've had three offices. So, uh, and they are the same now as they were back then. So New York, London, and San Francisco. What, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in, Cyrus? Can we see them doing the jobs that, that we're doing today? Uh, so, you know, nobody's hired at our firm, uh, and I think sometimes this is unfortunately the case. Um, but at our firm, nobody is hired uh, for two years. Uh, we're hiring them because we really do believe that they can go all the way. Um, and that means that, in, and, and again, of course, I'm a huge fan of consulting, so I always use it as an example. And what's, what's kind of unique about it, and at our firm, um, but like others, that you, in order to move through those major kind of levels of, of development, of, of professional development, um, you have to play very different roles and functions uh, and learn different uh, skills. And so coming in, you are a micro problem solver. So you are a researcher, you're an analyst, uh, you do the analysis and you learn how to, you learn the fundamentals of dressing down a problem and critically thinking about and building it back together. That's what you do. Um, as a manager, Wow, you you know how to do all of that, presumably, because you've mastered it, you've moved on, but you've also learned how to teach. You've learned how to manage a timeline. You've know you've learned how finish what finish looks like, and you uh, have learned how to up manage as well. It's a lot of communication, um, but it's also about how to how to teach and how to do someone else's job 
uh, you know, as well as, as you can, as they can, and then communicating that as well. And then, of course, the most advanced level is, is uh, you know, around uh, business development, client relationship management. And it is communication, but it's communication at a different level, of course. You're pitching to a different level. Um, and your relationship takes on very different um, uh, types depending on the personality that you're dealing with and the very different points of leverage that you have relative to an employee uh, at, uh, at, a, at a consultancy or on an engagement team working with you. So very different dynamics across all three, you know, kind of major levels. And then there's a fourth one, which, um, you know, I, I'm, I and my business partner have been very lucky to get to. Um, and we uh, we're at the level of those different three different functions, but also about, you know, some, somehow, you know, leading this firm to the next stage uh, and finding, you know, finding the next gap and, and trying to fill it at the same time. Um, and that's a very different set of uh, skills as well. So uh, those are the things um, that uh, I think are, are going to make us very different from a development standpoint as well. Are you involved in all the hiring of new employees? Do they all come across you or only direct reports? How do you manage that? Every single one. And, uh, you know, to the point that uh, <laughs> there are some inefficiencies <laughs> definitely in the process. But you know what? Um, I would rather deal with those any day. And, and I'd rather talk to an extra, you know, 20 to 30 percent of people that, that don't make the, the cut um, than to lose out on. Yeah, th- there are some things that you need to be a micromanager on that you need to make sure you, you do see every single um, candidate comes through at a certain level. And when I say at a certain level, I mean at a certain level of quality, not to, not not in the firm. Uh, but everybody uh, comes through uh, a conversation with me, absolutely. And then uh, also my business partner will will usually get to pretty much all of them as well. And it's because you know w- we started this firm. Um, we put the name on it and, uh, we are responsible for it. And there, the number one thing I will leave you with on that point, uh, for, uh, for our firm. Um, and I think anybody in consulting, but it's a business of people. We don't have widgets. (laughs) We have people, we have their brains, we have their experiences, we have their potential and everything else we are trying to build with them. Uh, and so, you know, of course, of course I'm a hundred percent involved, maybe too much with recruitment. Well, it's an important part. I mean, you know, I, I know that as a recruiter, how important it is to get the right people in the right seats. But, you know, let's say if you're in a situation where you only have a few minutes to interview someone, what would you focus in on? You know, what's kind of like the key kind of tipping point for you when you're uh, interviewing new candidates? Are they listening? Uh, I think that's what, probably the most important thing. Um, if they're only consumed by what um what they're what they're hoping that i'm thinking about them <laughs> are they are they <laughs> or what they want you right. to hear yeah perhaps. are they thinking yeah are they using enough sat words when they're speaking no <laughs> you know what they ought to be thinking uh, about is um is is absolutely like what what did what did I say? And are you actually answering that question, or are you answering the question that you can ask, or you want to ask, um, or you want to answer? Excuse me. I think that um, that that people really kind of get get caught up in their script, in their internal monologue or, or dialogue with themselves, and and they they continue to kind of go back to that. Uh, and we should all have gravity towards that because that represents our ideals and philosophies at the end of the day. But I tell you what, the um, you know the most important thing is actually understanding standing you know, remembering the question that the person just asked you. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm trying so hard to remember the question that you asked at the beginning of this. <laughs> and you always, job, try, you always try to tie it back at the end. And uh, I think that's the sign of a, of, a, of a person who's going to be successful in almost any role. 
Yeah, it's so true. I've got a client out on the West Coast, great guy, We've probably done, I don't know, half a dozen searches for him over the last couple of years. And his pet peeve is, Brant, make sure everybody knows that they've got to good, have good listing skills. And so I literally do a tutorial with everyone that goes in. Don't interrupt. Wait till he's finished. Even if you know the answer, don't jump in. But, you know, you'd be surprised sometimes with, you know, people get excited, you know, obviously in interview situations, but also they are so quick to impress, but they don't understand that that listening and truly understanding, you know, what the other person is saying is so important in the business day to day. You know, and he says, it's not about me. It's not about my ego. I want to make sure when they come into this organization, they're going to be working with people with all different types of intellects, all different types of skills. And if they aren't good listeners, they're going to fail real quickly. And it's, it's a good point. You bet. You got it. Sorry, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. We've got one last question that we'd like to ask. And, you know, as I uh, was mentioning before the podcast, we've got many people in the middle market, uh, you know, like yourself that have, you know, founded their own firms or looking to found their own firms, perhaps some point in the future, or maybe they're climbing the corporate ladder. And, you know, the question is, what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who, you know, has the eyes on the corner office themselves, or, or maybe wants to be an entrepreneur someday and found their own company? I do get asked this question quite a bit, and uh, I, I really do think that um, my answer to it is uh, has been consistent over time, and, and it's because it, it's genuinely true. If you, if you have to, um, if you have to convince yourself that um, that this is the right thing to be doing, uh, or you are wondering what other people are going to think about something, if it's anything other than what you, if you believe in fate, which most of us don't, but if you were to believe in fate, um, that this is obviously the thing and there's just nothing else on it. It's not even that I'm ignoring everything else, but that they're truly, I just don't have vision outside of that. Um, that that is the one thing that you go to sleep uh, about thinking about and, and waking up about uh, and, and pursuing every morning, then, then don't do it. If that's not it, don't do it. Uh, and, and, uh, and truly, don't force yourself to be an entrepreneur. Don't force yourself to be an owner of a vision and execution on a dream. Don't do that. Because if you're doing it, you're, you're not, you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> it should just be where you naturally lead yourself to. Um, and uh, and the, the forces of the universe kind of guide you in that direction. As hokey as it sounds, <laughs> it is absolutely true. I'm not saying that as a rule. There are probably other people who have you know, done it because they felt it was right. Um, and they had to convince themselves of that. But I do think that, the, at least for myself, I can tell you that um, there was never a question <laughs> You just do it. Um, and of course it was going to be successful. And maybe that's stupid. You know, may maybe that is stupid. And maybe you have to be a little bit stupid to, to do this, right? But I do also think that uh, you're not going to know um, whether it is stupid or not. And you're not going to know whether there is another option because it will obviously be the thing right there in front of you every, every morning. Cyrus Trudy, thank you once again for sharing your journey into the corner office. Likewise. Thank you so much, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.